Thank you, Father, for all of your gift, gifts that you give us, life especially, for salvation, for this incredible plan that you show us in your word. We want to get in on it. So please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am going through a series right now. We're in the book of Hebrews, and we're at a particular place where we're going to look at the basics of Christianity, and uh, because it lists these six basics of Christianity. So I thought it would be a good idea to remind you of this ministry we have, basic training. And uh, if you have not gone through that, I would highly encourage you to consider that we have people who are trained to do one-on-one to go through with you this uh, basic training. We have basic training one, which is the basics of Christianity. It's just four weeks. You get together with a person one-on-one, and they share some material. You get some material. Then they have basic training two, which is on the, new, on the Old Testament or New Testament? New Testament. And then three is Old Testament. Got it. Yeah, okay. So, you know, if, if you would like to go through that, just sign it up on the uh, connection card. Or if you'd like to get trained to be a trainer, we could use some more, right? Sign that on there. Okay, so that'll be great. Okay, we are at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, page 653 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring one to you. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse, and today we're kind of camping out for the next few weeks at these three verses because we want to look at basic Christianity. Uh, I want to show you a very brief video clip, though. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Now, personally, The Matrix is my favorite movie of all time. Okay, and that might not be your case. I mean, I did think that Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Lord of the Rings trilogy, Guardians of the Galaxy, those are a close second. But the reason why I like The Matrix is because of the allusions that it has to Christianity all the way through. I don't think it's a Christian film, don't get me wrong. But the allusions that there, even this whole scene here, he is calling him to make a decision. Blue pill or red pill? Your fantasy world or the truth? Billy Graham, his magazine that he put out was called Decision. He always, as he preached, he called people to make a decision because that is what takes place. The best, there's these, uh, have you seen the billboards, best decision ever? I think it's for one of the colleges up north or something, isn't it? uh, You know, that's their billboard, okay? Best decision ever. Listen, the best decision ever is to follow Jesus, 
to decide to get in on God's grand plan. And but so we want to see over these next few weeks what are the basic essential components of God's grand plan because we all make a decision to get in on the plan or not. Let look look at our passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, Let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. Now, we've already looked at this passage once. The context is in, it comes right after the section where he chided them for their laziness and refusal to become mature. He's saying, you still need milk. You need to start eating solid food. And now he's saying, here, we need to leave these basic teachings and move on to maturity. But, then, but he lists these basic teachings, which he calls the foundation. These are the foundations of basic Christianity, the basic how to get in on God's plan. So once we get in on his plan, then we mature. So we want to, let's look at the basics first for a while. So we'll spend a few weeks on each of these. The first one here is repentance. Repentance from dead works is what he says. So we want to look at these and see what they say. As foundational, once again, they're essential to God's plan of salvation, which means these are not minor issues. Galatians 1.8, Paul said, If I or an angel from heaven teach any other gospel than the one I have preached to you, let him be accursed. That, that makes it pretty serious, the basics, how to be saved. Uh, so we want to see what did Paul teach, right? Okay, if he says, if anyone teaches anything, even an angel teaches anything other than what I taught uh, on, on salvation, on the gospel, then let him be a curse. So we better find out what did Paul teach? What is the author of Hebrews teaching when he mentions these six things? What did Jesus teach? Concerning salvation. Those are critical questions we want to ask. John MacArthur, in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, starts it out making this statement. He says, This book grew out of seven years of study in the Gospels. As I immersed myself in the Gospel Jesus taught, I became acutely aware that most of modern evangelism both witnessing and preaching, falls far short of presenting the biblical evangel in a balanced and biblical way. The more I examine Jesus' public ministry and his dealings with inquirers, the more apprehensive I became about the methods and content of contemporary evangelism. On a disturbing number of fronts, the message being proclaimed today is not the gospel according to Jesus. The gospel in vogue today holds forth a false hope to sinners. It promises them they can have eternal life, yet continue to live in rebellion against God. Indeed, it encourages people to claim Jesus as Savior, yet defer until later the commitment to him as Lord. 
And so he's confronting an issue that I think is vital, and we need to look at this. If our author sees repentance as one of the foundational teachings, the elementary teachings, the basic principles of God's revelation, then we better understand how does this fit in, okay? Because God's plan really is a good plan, okay? I mean, it's is the best decision you could possibly make to follow Jesus Christ, right? So, I mean, there's absolutely no more important question, no more decision. I don't care if you're buying a house, getting married, whatever. The most important decision we could possibly make is getting in on this plan, getting saved, and then following Jesus, okay? So, how are we to understand these points? And if he's bringing up the first one as repentance, the first question that I think of is, is repentance necessary for salvation? That's what John MacArthur was addressing. Is repentance necessary for salvation? Okay, let's look at some verses in the Bible to see what Jesus, what Peter, and what Paul taught. Okay, look at Mark chapter 1 Verse 15, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Right off the bat, this is what we see. One of the first things he does after his temptation, it says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus taught repentance, didn't he? It's what he said. It was the basic element of his gospel. And from the very beginning, well, let's look at the very end of his life, of his ministry. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 46. Here we see at the very end, after his resurrection, and he's appeared to his disciples, we see here, in Luke 24:46 he also said to them this is what is written the messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem notice how he presents the gospel repentance for forgiveness of sins meaning without repentance there is no forgiveness of sins, according to Jesus. So repentance is essential to the gospel, according to Jesus. Let's look, uh, first of all, let me read something from Wayne Grudem's book, uh, Free Grace Theology, Five Ways It Diminishes the Gospel. He's confronting this idea that you can accept Jesus as Savior and not as Lord when you get saved. And uh, he actually quotes this passage, Luke 24, 47, and this is what he says. Notice here that faith is not even mentioned explicitly, just as genuine saving faith assumes that a person has repented from sin, so genuine repentance assumes that someone is turning to Christ in faith. Repentance from sin and faith in Christ are two sides of the same coin, two aspects of the same decision of the heart. It is a decision 
of the heart to repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ. That is what saves us. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Let's see what Peter said about the gospel. Acts 3, verse 19. He says, Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Notice here the context is clearly salvation. He says, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out in the times of refreshing may come in. Um, New King James says, repent and be converted is how it talks. And conversion is when we repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ and him alone for our salvation, we are converted. We are saved from our sin. But notice repentance is necessary. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Let's see if Paul taught this, because Paul's the one who said, if you preach any other gospel than the one I preach, let him be accursed. Let's see what, how Paul preached the gospel. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Notice he puts the two together like he's like all the rest of them did. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. We'll see some more about Paul later on. But this is critical for us to see. Uh, Once again in Grudem's book, Acts, let's see, Acts 20, verse 21, when he's referring to that, he says, both repentance and faith are mentioned in this passage. This particular Greek construction ties repentance and faith closely together, for only one definite article governs both nouns. This suggests that we should regard repentance and faith as two closely connected parts of one overall action, parts that cannot be separated, two sides of the same coin, so to speak. Repentance and faith, it really is one decision. Okay? So, it does appear that repentance is necessary for salvation. Why did this conversation or debate ever even come up? Let me give you a little bit of history. The modern free grace debate, it began actually at Dallas Theological Seminary. It began between John MacArthur and Charles Ryrie and uh, some others, uh, Hodges as well, and they Ryrie and Hodges taught that you could accept Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. That you said a prayer and that's how you got saved. And, it was, and their idea of faith was simply an intellectual assent to a list of facts. Do you believe this? Okay, you're in. Is how they taught the gospel. And MacArthur said, wait a minute, that is not the gospel Jesus taught. And if Jesus taught the wrong gospel, then we're all sunk. Right, And so there began this debate. Uh, it's not the first time this has come up in history. In the 17th century, we had what was called the antinomian debate. A few uh, began to teach this, that you could uh, accept Christ as Savior and keep on sinning, and sin didn't matter. You didn't need to repent 
uh, of your sin in order to be saved. But the vast majority of those, uh, if you look at the uh, Lutheran Confession, if you look at John Calvin, John Wesley, uh, you can look at the Assembly of God's Confession, the Southern Baptist Confession, uh, you, you name it, they all list repentance is necessary for Salvation. So this is a small group that was very vocal, that influenced a lot of people, but wrongly because they basically were teaching cheap grace. And it also reveals that they misunderstand something. They misunderstand what we are saved from. We want to be saved, right? Okay. Well, what are we saved from? Many people will say we're saved from hell. That is technically true, but that's not what the Bible says. Matthew well, it does say that, but it says more. Let's just say that, okay? Matthew one twenty one says Jesus came to save us from our sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin as well. And even the very presence of sin eventually when Jesus comes back. We're saved from our sin. So we need to understand what is sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Let me read a a definition of sin from Jan Hedinga, his book, Follow Me. He says, as we have seen, there are numerous definitions of sin that have at best a partial basis in Scripture. A church that has an incomplete understanding of sin won't understand sin to be a leadership or kingdom issue. Without the prophet's perspective on sin as intentional rebellion and disobedience, the kingdom message of Jesus doesn't make sense. And without the kingdom message, repentance doesn't make sense. He's defining sin as intentional rebellion and disobedience. That's what sin is. And we need to repent of that if we want to be saved. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga calls sin uh, the, he he calls it the uh, vandalism of shalom. His book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He says, sin is not the way it's supposed to be. I like the way he begins his book with a little story from the movie Grand Canyon. He says, in the film Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam and attempts to bypass it. His route takes him along streets that seem progressively darker and more deserted. Then the predictable bonfire of the vanity's nightmare. His expensive car stalls on one of those alarming streets whose teenage guardians favor expensive guns and sneakers. The attorney does manage to phone for a tow truck, but before it arrives, five young street toughs surround his disabled car and threaten him with considerable bodily harm. Then, just in time, the tow truck shows up and its driver, an earnest, genial man, begins to hook up to the disabled car. The toughs protest. The truck driver is interrupting their meal. So the driver takes the leader of the group aside and attempts a five-sentence introduction to metaphysics. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. 
Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Sin is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin is what has destroyed this world. It is bad in every single instance. It hurts us and everyone else. It is the vandalism of shalom. We're saved from sin. And so this might seem a little silly to even have to say, but you have to want to be saved from your sin before you can be saved from your sin. That's what repentance is. A true desire to be saved from sin, from your sin. In Mark chapter 10, 17 through 22, Jesus tells the story of the rich young ruler. Now, it's quite an interesting story because the rich young ruler comes and asks him very specifically, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's talking about salvation, isn't he? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus ends up saying to him, Sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Notice he didn't say, say this little prayer, and you won't have to go to hell. It's not what he said. It's kind of baffling when you think about what he said. I kind of sell everything I got and give it to the poor before I can be saved? It's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus actually said, you're lacking one thing, and then he lists three, okay? You're lacking one thing. The other two were simply his sin. He saw in that man, your sin is greed. You need to repent of your sin and then come follow me. That's how Jesus presented the gospel to that man. That man walked away. He didn't do what Jesus said. The man walked away, and Jesus didn't run after him and say, wait, 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 I was just kidding. You just got to say this little prayer, and then you can get saved. He didn't say that. He let him go to hell because his heart wasn't right. He wasn't willing to repent. Repentance is absolutely essential. For salvation, and you have to want to be saved from your sin before you can be saved from your sin. Now, that kind of makes it really, really important, then, doesn't it? So, that brings up the second question What is repentance? I want to get this one right if it's essential for salvation, okay? What is repentance? First, I'm going to tell you what it isn't, then I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I'm going to tell you what it isn't, okay? So that's, we'll follow that. Because we want to get in on God's plan. Take the red pill, okay? That's kind of like, you know, redemption, blood of Jesus. I dream a lot and think, okay. Well, anyway, okay. But a decision here, this decision to get in on God's plan. Repentance is God's plan. Okay, now repentance, first of all, is not penance, Okay, let me explain to you the Latin Vulgate fiasco, okay? 
Jerome, way back when, translated the Hebrew Old Testament and then the Greek New Testament into Latin, in which became the Latin Vulgate. One, and he did a marvelous job in many respects, but one of the huge mistakes he made was he took the Greek word for repentance, which is metanoia, and he translated it penitatia in Latin. You're saying, so what? That's the word penance. He translated repentance as penance. And so for the whole Middle Ages, people embraced this false idea of penance. That I, the way I get forgiveness for my sins after my baptism is I have to do these works in order to merit God's favor again. That's what penance is. That's works. It's not grace. And it's not what the Word says. Repentance is not penance. It was tragic. It just, I mean, it, oh, I can't get it, say anymore, okay? It was a misunderstanding as well of what substitution is. The substitutionary atonement. In the Old Testament, when someone sinned, they offered an animal as sacrifice. The animal was the substitute. The animal was killed, paid the penalty instead of the person. In the New Testament, the ultimate sacrifice was Jesus. He died on the cross paying the penalty for our sins that we couldn't pay. That's how we get saved. Substitution. Not by our own works, not by our own merits, but by Christ's merit and his alone. That's how we get saved. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here, he makes this statement. This is to Christians, by the way. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. Because sin is bad for you, okay? But then he says, but if anyone does sin, because we all do, don't we? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Our trust in Jesus, his work on the cross is what brings us forgiveness, not our doing good works, saying Hail Marys or anything else like that. Penance is not found in the Bible. And by the way, even Catholic scholars agree that metanoia does not mean penance, but they continue to teach that idea anyway. So, repentance is not penance. So what is it? Here's a definition. Repentance is a change of mind and heart about your sin with a sincere resolve to turn from it. It is a change of mind and heart about your sin with a sincere resolve to turn from it. True repentance affects the mind, heart, and will, your whole person. Let me tell you about another fiasco. It's called the Enlightenment fiasco, okay? In the Enlightenment, you had the uh, philosophical and scientific revolutions taking place. Lots of emphasis on the brain, 
okay, on the mind. It was all about what you think. And because of that, they divorced the mind and heart. And you became basically a big brain. And that's where modernism came in. Modernism was this idea of reason being the king. It was all about the mind, and the heart was completely neglected. Now, the opposition to modernism since the 1960s is postmodernism. And postmodernism was a reaction to modernism, and it was a proper reaction. They needed to react because we're not just a big brain. But they tragically pendulum swung the opposite way and emphasized only the heart. It's all about the feelings. Just how you feel, that's all that matters, your feelings. And they also then made the huge mistake. We're not just a big heart either. We are a whole person. We're a mind, heart, and will. Repentance in the biblical understanding of it, this Embracing of salvation, the whole person embraces Jesus Christ. The mind, heart, and will. The mind, you recognize sin as the enemy. You also recognize you can't defeat it, but God can. So you see the problem. You know sin is bad, but it also affects the heart you begin to hate sin and to love God. Whereas before you loved your sin, you begin to hate sin and you begin to want God in your life. You want him in your life because you believe his plan is better for you than the plan you've been living out in this sinful life. So you begin to hate sin and to love God. All these verses bring out how the heart is involved in true salvation. We begin to love God and we begin to hate sin. But also the will is involved. You don't want sin in your life anymore. That's that third part of my definition. A sincere resolve. Sincere resolve. Uh, that we to turn from sin. I don't want to go that way in life anymore. Okay? So it's a matter of the will. I've shared this illustration before, but I, I like it. It's a good illustration, okay? Imagine this. Somebody holding a snake in their hands. And they cry out, Somebody, save me from this snake. And someone comes along and says, Okay, I have a plan. On the count of three, you throw down the snake, and then I'll put this basket over it, and you'll be saved from the snake. And then the person holding the snake says, I don't want to get rid of the snake. I love the snake. I just want to be saved from it. That's not very smart, is it? Right? Not very The person really doesn't want to be saved from the snake, do they? They just don't want the penalty or whatever it is, okay? They want to hold on to the snake. The snake is sin. You have to want to be saved from your sin before you can be saved from your sin. Now, a part of you still loves sin, even as a believer. 
Because we don't lose our sinful nature when we get saved. And so we have this struggle in our lives as Christians that before you were a Christian, you didn't have that struggle. But as a Christian, we have this struggle. A part of me loves God and hates sin, but a part of me still loves the sin. And so we cry out to God and he gives us the strength through the Holy Spirit to overcome the sin. But notice, you don't want the sin in your life. It is a sincere resolve to turn from it. Your will is affected. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. We have to want Christ in our life as Savior and Lord. We don't get to pick and choose the parts of Jesus we like. (laughs) We invite him. I'm delighted in you, Jesus. I want you in my life. John 3 Uh, or Revelation 3 verse 20 says, Behold, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking at the door of your heart. If anyone will open the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. Intimate fellowship. But we have to want him in our life. It's a decision that we make. I don't want sin in that life. I want God. So repentance It's a change of mind and heart about your sin with a sincere resolve to turn from it. And repentance is not works. It is not works. Uh, If it were works, then that would mean you're saved by works, right? Because we're saying repentance is necessary for salvation. So if repentance is works, then we have a false gospel. But repentance is not works. Look at Mark or Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Here, John the Baptist says, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. Now, he was addressing the Pharisees because they clearly didn't have a change of heart about their sin. They just wanted to see what was going on and were thinking it might be nice to go ahead and jump in the pool, river, whatever. Okay? And, and he's saying, he saw in their hearts and he said, Produce fruit consistent. If you have true repentance, because his baptism was a baptism of repentance, if you have true repentance, it's going to produce fruit. Good works are the fruit of salvation. They're not the cause of salvation. Repentance leads to good works, but repentance isn't good works. That's what we can see from this verse. Okay, look at Acts chapter 26, 15 through 20. We see Paul once again preaching the gospel, and he is uh, speaking here. Whoops, I'm in Acts 26. He's speaking here at one of his trials, and he's speaking about how he got saved, how he got converted. Verse 15, I asked, who are you, Lord? This is when he got knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. Why is he sending them to them? 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's how Paul preached. Turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God's, so that you may receive the forgiveness of sin. Then he goes on, verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. Notice at the very end, he talks about repentance, but he says they're different than the works. You repent and then also do works worthy of repentance, okay? Repentance, part of salvation, but then the fruit or the result of true faith and repentance is good works, but the good works are not repentance. So repentance is not works. This is the complaint of the free grace people. And in part, it is deserved because of sloppy theology. Sometimes when we preach the gospel, we make it sound like you got to do good works to to get saved. And so they have a, a, a rightful beef against that, okay? Um, because we need to make sure that people understand we're saved by grace alone, not by works so that no one can boast. So sometimes when we say, when we talk about repentance, we say repentance means you have to stop sinning, okay? That's one way people define repentance. But think about that just for a moment. If repentance means you stop sinning, that kind of sounds like a work. But also, it's really illogical. I have to stop sinning in order to be saved where I get the power to be able to stop sinning. See, that doesn't doesn't work, does it? No, I have to want to stop sinning. There's a difference. It's a matter of the heart. I have to want to stop sinning. That's repentance. Then God comes in. You're born again. He gives you a new heart, puts his Holy Spirit in you, and then you actually have the power to be able to stop sinning. And so good works are the evidence, are the result, are the fruit of true salvation. But repentance is not works. Repentance is a gift from God. We see this in 2 Timothy 2, 25, Acts 11, verse 18. It's, sometimes it sounds like a bad thing. It's a good thing. It is a gift from God, a gift. Do you like gifts? Okay. You say, well, not all my gifts. This one is a good gift, okay? It is a wonderful gift. We don't deserve the opportunity to repent. Many people are mad at God because they think he owes them something. But God doesn't owe us anything. We have all committed cosmic treason and deserve the death penalty as stated in Genesis chapter 3. In his grace, God allows us to repent. 
you can choose the red pill. <laughs> Back to the movie illustration. Okay, it's just an illustration. You can make a decision. He calls and he allows us. He opens our heart and we can then make this decision to follow Jesus, to repent of our sins and place our faith in him. It is God's kindness. His kindness. It's not a bad thing. Um, it's not like, oh, I have to give something up. Okay? Thinking of it as a bad thing. No, it is a good thing. I can be free finally. Wow. Repentance is God's Kindness. Romans 2.4 actually says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Uh, speaking of how God will do kind things, specifically and, and especially the greatest kindness of all is sending his son to die on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven, okay? He, that's his kindness. And when we think about Jesus and we think about what he went through just for me when I didn't deserve it, while I was yet an enemy, he died for me. I think, wow, it draws us to him. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Because sin is always harmful. It is always harmful to you and everyone else involved. Cornelius planting again in his book. He says the reason is that sin is a parasite. An uninvited guest that keeps tapping its host for sustenance. Nothing about sin is its own. All its power, persistence, and plausibility are stolen goods. Sin is not really an entity, but a spoiler of entities. Not an organism, but a leech on organisms. Sin does not build shalom, it vandalizes it. In metaphysical perspective, evil offers no true alternative to good, as if the two were equal and opposite qualities. Goodness, says C.S. Lewis, is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness, and there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. Here, Lewis reproduces the old Augustinian idea that evil has no existence except as a privation of good. Good is original, independent, and constructive. Evil is derivative, dependent, and destructive. To be successful, evil needs what it hijacks from goodness. Paradoxically, though, sinners attack what's good. They usually intend to gain something good by sinning. I have written in my margin, we marvel at the parasite as it slowly kills us. Sin is bad for us. There was a man named John Newton who was a slave trader. And he would take a ship and go over to Africa and he would buy slaves from Africa and force them onto this ship where they would just pile them in. And just the trip alone across the Atlantic would kill 60% of the slaves before they ever even reached America. And then he would sell them to people who would use them as property and chattel. He was an evil man. And then he repented. 
that God saved. He wrote a song. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see. John Newton repented. If he wouldn't have repented, he wouldn't have gotten saved. But he did. Let's pray. As the worship team comes up, I just want to give you an opportunity this morning to repent. As the Lord puts on your heart things that you've done in your past, do you have a change of mind and heart about that sin where you wished you wouldn't have done it? You don't want it in your life anymore and you don't want to do it again. Then ask the Lord silently, please forgive me. And if this is the first time you've ever repented of your sin, place your faith in Christ and Him alone as your Savior. And He will save you completely. He will make you born again. A new person in Christ. A true believer. A Christian. One of His children. It's that simple. Stand.